Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Okay, I think we're holding 399. So we're discussing someone who has to deal with a a sluggish heart, a loss of interest, when a person stops caring, and a person who suffers from excess of narcissism, a person who may suffer from megalomania, a person who suffers from all these different psychological illnesses, and um, it just closes, their heart just shuts down. They stop caring, they, stop, they lose interest, and they just don't respond anymore to anything spiritual. So how do you wake them up? How do you ignite the spark? How do you... So in this chapter he says that one of the ways of, of looking at it is really assessing yourself honestly, objectively. The Mishnah says that every person is obligated to view each and every person as being superior to yourself. Every, every human being to being superior to yourself. And not only to, to act as if they were superior to you, but to actually assess yourself honestly and to realize that they are superior to you. How is that possible? This guy is a bum a low life, and I'm, I'm an up, upright citizen. I'm sitting in the front row of the synagogue, and this guy is all the way in the back. What, what do you mean? That person is better than I, and I, I'm superior than I am. And he says, Altarebi says, yes, externally, superficially, you're the upright citizen, and that guy is the bum in the low light. But wait a minute, Let, let's go a little deeper. Firstly, the, it says, the rabbi said, don't judge a person until you put yourself in his shoes. He has to travel for business. He may have to travel in circles, and he has to be immersed in materialism. So maybe he has to go to such places which really um, are very tempting and seductive, and it's very difficult to overcome the test that that person has. Secondly, that person may have a fiery nature, and therefore being, uh, being exposed to such an environment arouses his nature to such an extent that it's, it's, it's almost impossible to fight it. So firstly, you, the Torah scholar, you, your life may be sheltered. You may live a very sheltered life. You're not exposed. And even if you are exposed, maybe your nature, you're very cold by nature. You're like ice. You don't respond to the environment around you. You live in your own world. You entertain yourself. You don't need other people to take care of you. And you live in your own world. So therefore, you're not so affected by the world around you, by the environment around you. Versus another person who's very sociable by nature, is very can't help but be affected by, by his environment. And it's exacerbated when you throw him into like the, the, the fire. Then it becomes impossible for him to, to really resist the temptation. So don't judge another person so quickly. Now, although it's not an excuse for the person himself, because God doesn't give a person a test they can't handle. God puts you in such a situation, obviously, you have what it takes to overcome your tendencies and to overcome your environment. But that's for the person. 
to consider on his own. But for someone else, for the outsider, you can't judge that a person. But put yourself in his shoes. Would you be able to resist the temptations like he, like he had? So you look down at this person. You condemn this person. This person is a lowlife. This person is a bum. How could he do what he has done? And you immediately dismiss him and you label him and you, cont- and you feel so proud of yourself. Ah, compared to him, I'm a saint. Wait a minute. Yes, that rapist, that murderer. Oh, well, let's, let's, wait a second. We can't even relate to what he had to go through. You know what it is for a person to be tempted to murder? I mean, thank God we're not tempted. We don't even know what it's like. Imagine a person who's tempted to rape. I mean, it's, it's, we, can't even, we can't even relate to it. And yet we expect that person to overcome his desire and to do the right thing. Check his instincts. Check his desires. And yet we live in a society that tells everyone, follow every urge, follow every instinct, don't check anything, don't limit yourself, don't discipline yourself, just do whatever feels right. So just because you don't have that urge and that instinct that that person has, but yet you expect that person to have this superhuman strength to overcome this raging urge that he has to murder, this raging urge that he has to steal, or whatever it is. And yet, you condemn him. And you hold yourself superior to him. How dare he broke the law. How dare he did something that's immoral. He didn't check his, his urges and his instincts. Do you check your urges and your instincts? Do you demand of yourself the same thing you're demanding of that person? Is there anything in your life that you have to struggle? Do you ever inconvenience yourself? Do you ever do something that's a little uncomfortable? Do you ever go beyond your nature? Just, just, just a hair breath beyond your nature. Do you ever push yourself? Exceed your limitations? Go the extra mile? Or you, you just live in a comfort zone? So you don't expect anything of yourself. You don't push yourself. You don't do anything that goes contrary to your nature. And yet you expect that other person to, to reveal the superhuman quality and to overcome his, his uh, temptations, resist his powerful urges. And even if you do go beyond the comfort zone, let's say, you, yes, you do push yourself. You're not lazy. You're a person that pushes yourself, that demands of himself. It's constantly growing and changing and... You're always pushing the envelope a little. But to what extent? You're pushing it a little. You're taking a baby step forward. But that's not what you're demanding and expecting of this bum and this lowlife. You're demanding of him some superhuman effort to overcome this, this, this titanic urge that he has, this gigantic urge that he has to do something wrong. And yet, you expect of him to be able to overcome it. And if not, you condemn him. Do you have such a titanic struggle in your life? When was the last time you had this heroic struggle in your life that you really broke through all the boundaries and you pushed yourself to do something that went totally contrary to your nature and that, that, that took your kishkas out and that took so much out of yourself? When was the last time you demanded that of yourself? So why are you so quick in condemning the other person? You think there's any difference in you and him? There's no difference. You, you do what's comfortable, he did what's comfortable. Just he's, he has other tests. He has other temptations. He has other urges. Because don't forget, you know, this is the concept of trickle-down morality. Why do you think that you have that murderer and that rapist? Do you know that in the shtetl, in the either shtetl, in Eastern Europe, there was almost no violence? There was no crime. There was no murder. There was no rape. You know why? Because the, the top 10% of society the elite of society, they push themselves. 
They demanded of themselves. They were spiritually alive. And because they demanded of themselves so much, that it trickled down, that even in the lowest segment of society, those who were dumb, those who were, who had the, who were very low IQ, or whatever it was, at least, at least the edges of society, at worst, they were harmless. But there was no violence. It was a very, it was a very moral society. If you want to take the measurement of a society, don't look at the bottom 10%. It's very nice for those smug and content, the elite, to feel content. Well, I'm, you know, I'm not a murderer, I'm not a rapist. Look at those bums, those lowlifes, those ghetto people. But the truth is, as the saying goes in Yiddish, a fish that stinks, stinks from the head. The rat is at the head. It's the top 10% that's rotten and corrupt, and that's why you have the lowest 10% that are rotten and corrupt. Where are their heads at? Where are they at? You're feeling so arrogant and superior to everyone else? It's all your fault. You are to blame. Because there's no spirituality in your life. There's no growth in your life. You live very comfortable. Because if you were to demand of yourself and you were to grow and exceed your limitations and push yourself and push the envelope and push the limits, that would trickle down all the way to the bottom, all the way to the lowest end, that they too would also be elevated on their level. So why are you so superior? So the Mishnah says every person, you have to consider every person superior to you. Because you are not struggling on the same level that that person is struggling. So that person is ahead. So if you assess yourself honestly and objectively, it really, it's, it's enough to really help you with, you with your narcissism or your grandiosity. You, know, you think you're God's gift to mankind. Wait a minute, the Mishnah says you're the lowest person on the face of the earth. Every single one, every human being on this earth is superior to you. And that's an honest assessment. So you're so grandiose and you're so feel so superior and the Mishnah says the opposite. You're all the way you're all the way here and everyone else is up there. And that's an honest, honest assessment. Because we're so quick to condemn everyone else. And we're so quick to judge and so quick to hold ourselves up high and feel so superior to everyone else. When in truth, we're the same as they are. And he'll explain even worse. Because we expect more from ourselves. You expect more from the learned person than you expect from, from the ignorant person. You expect more from the top 10% than you expect from the lowest 10%. You know better. So this is enough to prick your bubble, deflate you, this ego, this arrogance, this grandiosity, this arrogance, which breeds habri, which breeds complacency, which breeds, which causes you to lose your interest and lose your and stop caring about, about uh, your soul, about spirituality, about godliness, this is enough to, to wake you up. This is enough to sober you up. So he says on page 399 that if the person makes an honest assessment, the Torah scholar makes an honest assessment, how, how, he, how he's engaged in his own Torah learning, whether he's pushing himself beyond the limit, whether he's just learning as much as it's comfortable for him to learn, 
whether he's making demands on himself, whether he's pushing himself. For even the most dispassionate and cloistered of men must often engage in battle with his evil inclination, both in the area of doing good and that of turning away from evil, as the Alter Rebbe goes on to illustrate. In the realm of do good, in the service of prayer with kavanah, devotion, for example, he must battle his evil inclination daily in order to pour out his soul before God with his entire strength, to the extent of wringing out his soul, i.e. exhausting all of his intellectual and emotional power in his devotion. This battle must be waged both before, i.e. preparatory to, and also during prayer as follows. He must wage a great and intense war against his body and the animal soul within it, which impede his devotion, crushing and grinding them like dust every single day before the morning and evening prayers. Also during prayer he must exert himself with an exertion of the spirit, so that his spirit should not grow weary of lengthy contemplation on the greatness of God, and an exertion of the body to remove the hindrances to devotion imposed by the body, as will be explained further at length. Anyone who has not attained this standard of waging such a strenuous war against his body has not yet measured up to the quality and dimension of the war waged daily within the Kal Shibakalim against the evil nature which burns like a fiery flame so that it, this powerful evil impulse, be humbled and broken through the fear of God. This, then, is the standard by which everyone must judge himself. Does he battle against his evil impulse during prayer and similarly in the other areas of divine service that the Alter Rebbe will soon discuss, as intensely as the Kal Shibakalim must battle against his. So too with one's Kavanah in the grace after meals, and in the benedictions, whether those said prior to eating, or those recited before performing a mitzvah, all of which requires a battle with one's evil impulse, not to mention one's intention in performing a mitzvah, that it be done solely for the sake of a mitzvah, i.e. for God's sake. This requires a still greater effort, and in this one will surely find himself wanting. Similarly, with regard to the battle required in the matter of one's occupation in Torah study, one must struggle to study far more than what is demanded by his innate or accustomed desire, by means of a mighty battle with his body. When one studies Torah only as much as his natural inclination or habituated diligence dictates, he requires no effort or struggle at all. But in order to match the struggle of the Kal Shibakalim, one must study far, far more than he would by nature or habit, as the Alter Rebbe continues. So you feel superior to that bum in low life, the worthless of worthless. If you had a heroic struggle in your life and you pushed yourself way beyond limitation, okay, then, then maybe you can feel superior or equal. <laughs> but without that struggle, why, why, are you, why are you feeling so high and mighty and continue? For to study a fraction more than is one's want entails but a minor tussle. It neither parallels nor bears comparison with the war of the Kal Shibakalim against his evil impulse, which burns like fire, for which he is nonetheless called utterly wicked, Rasha Gamor, if he does not conquer his impulse so that it be subdued and crushed before God. Similarly, unless one struggles with his evil impulse to study much more than his nature or habit demands, he is no less wicked than the Kal Shibakalim. But one may object to this reasoning. 
How, one may say, can I in all honesty compare my shortcomings to those of the Kal Shabakalim? I am lacking merely in the quality of the good that I do, whilst he actually and actively violates prohibitions enumerated in the Torah. To this, the Alter Rebbe counters. So how can you compare? He, I am not doing anything wrong. We're talking about a Benini. A Benini is someone who on paper is perfect. He's an upright citizen. He's doing everything that's right, everything that's expected of him. He's living up to, to all, all, all Hashem's expectations. He's doing the right thing. He's not doing anything wrong. So how can you compare him to the worthless of worthless? To the low life. He's violating, trespassing, transgressing. He's committing, doing sins. I'm not committing any sins. Okay, maybe it's a sin of omission. I'm not living up. I'm studying Torah. Not only am I not committing any sins, I'm actually doing all the mitzvahs, everything that's expected of me. But I'm just following my habit. I'm just following my nature. I'm not doing anything unusual. I'm not doing anything unexpected, anything unpredictable. I'm not exceeding myself. I'm not doing anything uncomfortable. So how can you put me in the same class as the person who is actively doing sins of commission? So Al-Tarebi answers, What difference is there between the category of turn away from evil, in which the Kal Shabakalim fails by active violation, and the category of do good, in which he fails by neglecting to exert himself in prayer, Torah study, and the like? To be sure, there are differences between the two categories. Each has its own unique spiritual effects, its own specific intentions. There are differences between a sin of commission and a sin of omission, as reflected in the Torah. When a person sins a sin of omission, it's very easy to do teshuva, because you haven't really done anything wrong. You just did not do what you should have done. So you can do teshuva and you're forgiven on the spot. If you repent, you're forgiven on the spot. Versus a sin of commission, you've done damage. You've harmed yourself. You've created a scar. There has to be an atonement. You can't just do teshuva and, you know, just forget about it. You need teshuva and then you need some pain to help you erase, erase uh, uh, the sin. So there are differences between the two. And if a person is faced with a choice of doing a mitzvah, or doing, then the mitzvah comes first. So there, 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 are, there are huge differences between action and avoidance of sin. How can you say there is no difference between the two? So he explains. But these differences pertain only to the person performing the mitzvah. The essential point in a mitzvah, however, is that it is an expression of the will of the only and unique God. And in this, there is no difference whatsoever between the two categories, as the Alter Rebbe continues. Both are the commandments of the Holy King, the only and unique one, blessed be he. The failings of the observant individual in the quality of his prayer, Torah study, and so on, are therefore comparable to the transgression of the Kal Shebekalim. Since all the mitzvot are commandments from the king, the king, and he uses the expression the holy king, a king is remote, removed from his, his people. And there are two aspects of of a commandment that comes from a king. One is a king gives a commandment uh, because in order to run the country there are things that have to get done and therefore he gives a commandment and guides his people how to run the country. But then there is as a king and a subject the king gives a commandment because he's the king and you're the subject 
and you subjected yourself to the king, and therefore it's to fulfill the will of the king. So for us, what's primary about the mitzvah is not so much the technical aspect of the mitzvah, the functional aspect of the mitzvah. Every mitzvah accomplishes something specific. But for us, what's far more important of the mitzvah is the fact that it's God's commandment, and God is our king, and we are his subjects. And as far as we're concerned, that's really all that matters. It doesn't matter what the commandment is. All the commandments in that sense are equal. If God would have commanded us to chop wood, we would have chopped wood with the same enthusiasm as we light a Shabbos candle, as we eat matzah and Pesach, as we put on tefillin, as we give a penny to tzedakah. There is no difference. It's, it's the commandment of the king. It's God's will. It's our opportunity to connect with Hashem. And that's the essence of the mitzvah. So the details don't matter. Yes, the details, there are details, and every mitzvah has its unique quality, and there's a difference between a positive commandment and a prohibition. But those are all details. The essence of the mitzvah is, the core of the mitzvah is, that this is the will of God, and this is how we connect with God. So therefore, it makes no difference whether God's wish is ex- expresses itself in a positive mitzvah, or God's wish expresses itself in a prohibition. God says, don't violate this prohibition, don't act, don't do this. Or God's wish is, do this, study Torah, do mitzvah. And therefore, if I am copying out on the positive commandment, I'm studying Torah, but I'm not studying Torah properly, appropriately, to my level. I'm not really giving it all. I'm not really investing 100% of my being in the Torah. I'm not really pushing myself beyond my limit. I'm just coasting along. It's technical, it's mechanical, it's it's easy, it's comfortable, I'm used to it already, it's a habit, it's enjoyable, I'm just doing it, and I'll do as much as my uh, enjoyment dictates, as much as my habit dictates, not more. I'm not going to exert too much, I'm not going to exert myself too much for God. So here, in the negative mitzvah, God wants me to overcome my urge, my instinct. Because when is it considered that you fulfill a negative prohibition if a person is tempted? If a person is not tempted to steal, and you don't steal, you're not fulfilling a mitzvah. A thief <laughs> who doesn't have the opportunity to steal thinks he's honest. A mitzvah is when you have the opportunity and you have the desire. And only because God said so. God says, no, don't steal. Like the story when the Rebbe heard, that Rebbe heard the son standing with his, the axe over his father's head. And he says, I'm so tempted to kill you. If God didn't command me, I shouldn't murder, I would have killed you right now. So he was tempted to murder, but because God said no... He restrained himself and he, and he stopped. That's how you fulfill the negative mitzvah. When you're tempted to sin, you have the ability to sin. Person, when a person is too old, is too weak to sin, he doesn't sin, that's not, that's not fulfilling the mitzvah. When a person has the means, a person has the energy, and a person has the ability, and only because God said, no, it's wrong, don't do it, and therefore a person restrains himself, that's how he fulfills the mitzvah. The same is true with the positive mitzvah, that God wants us to study Torah. And he wants us to overcome our urge, our instinct, our habit, even our positive habit, to go beyond our habit, to really throw ourselves into the studying of Torah, our whole mind, our whole soul, 100%. So if we're only studying with half a brain and we're just, you know, whatever is easy and convenient, we're not really pushing ourselves, we're not really making any demands of ourselves, so we're not doing God's will. So what difference does it make if we're not doing God's will in relationship to a negative commandment, or we're not doing God's will in relation to the positive commandment. The bottom line is, I'm not doing God's will. 
So there is no difference. Yes, technically and mechanically, there's a difference between a positive, a difference between a negative. When you do a negative, you create a scar. Here, okay, I didn't study Torah, but I didn't do any damage. I didn't harm anyone. I didn't destroy the world. I didn't study Torah. So yes, you're right. Technically, you're right. In this case, I did damage to my soul. I did damage to the world. I, I committed the sin. In this case, it was a sin of, of omission. So I didn't reach my potential. I didn't push myself. But that's all the, tech, the technicality of the mitzvah. But when you get to the essence of the mitzvah, am I doing God's will? Am I doing God's will? Is my whole being an expression of what God wants? And therefore, if God wants it, then my life reflects God's will or not. And in this case, it's not. Because God wants me to exert myself and to really put my whole heart and soul into the mitzvah, into the Torah, and I'm not. So what difference does it make if I didn't do God's will in this case? If I didn't do God's will in that case, it was not. So therefore, the, the two of you are, are equal. The bum and the low life are you on the same level. You're feeling so high and mighty. Get off, get off the horse, high horse, and relax. You're not so high and mighty. You're on the same, same level as, as this one. Who you look down at and you in disgust. Who repulses you. How dear, how could he? Really. Use those same words on yourself. Exact same words. The way you're describing others is exactly the way you should describe yourself. Because you're really describing yourself. Disgusting, repulsive, bum, low life. Okay, same thing. Disgusting, repulsive. Because you're not doing what Hashem wants you. There's no heroic struggle. There's no real effort. There's no real movement. There's no real change. Just comfortable. And that's, that's enough to sober you up pretty quickly. <laughs> Assess yourself realistically. Have an honest assessment of who you really are. What you're really worth. The Zohar says that whoever is huge in this world is tiny in the other world. Whoever is tiny in this world is huge, is great in the other world. Yud is the smallest letter. It's just a dot. And Yud is the holiest letter. God's name. So whatever is tiny in this world is very, very divine, very precious, very great in the other world, in, from, from an honest perspective. But whatever is great in this egotistical world is very, is, is, is nothing. It's insignificant in the, in, in the, from a divine perspective. So this removes the blindness of our eyes. View yourself honestly, objectively, from God's point of view, from, from a realistic point of view. Yes, superficially, from an ego point of view, you're great, and that one is at the bottom of the totem pole, and you're on top. But if you look at it honestly, it's not so at all. Especially if you're so arrogant, and you're so taken by yourself. That's the first sign how off you are. Because the sign of genuineness is, is humility. When a person is humble, Moses was the most humble person that ever lived. That's a sign that you're really connected, that you're really in touch with reality, <coughs> that you're really grounded. Moses was grounded. He was truly grounded. He was the most humble person to live. He felt he was nothing. And then you're in touch. But when a person becomes so arrogant and grandiose 
and narcissistic and self-absorbed and self-centered. And the sign is, the, the giveaway is when you act arrogantly towards others, when internally you look down at others. Not only externally you don't act arrogantly, it's not enough. As long as internally you look down at others, you feel you're superior to others, that's the sign that something is wrong. You know, what's the first sign of illness? How do you know the body is ill? When the body starts feeling itself. A body that's healthy is light. You don't feel a body that's healthy. God forbid you ever tried carrying a corpse. It weighs, even a skinny, skinny person weighs. A, a person that's alive carries himself. There's a lightness to life. You don't feel yourself. That's a sign of life. When you start feeling yourself, or feeling your body, or feeling an organ, that's the first sign of illness. Something is wrong. So when a person is light, when a person is joyful, when a person is humble, a person is joyful, a person is in good spirits, a person sees the good in the other person, and loves the other person, and, and finds the good in the other person, and is joyful, and sees the positive, that's a sign of health. That's the essential sign of health. And this is the whole theme that he's discussing here. A Jew has to be joyful. That's the nature of it. You have to be joyful at all times. Joyful, lighthearted, cheerful, you know, optimistic, in a good mood. See the good. See the good around you. See the good in the other person. Once a person starts feeling himself and sensing himself and that foolish pride and arrogance and, and, um, and narcissism and grandiosity and superiority complex and you start seeing the negative in the other person and you feel superior that's a bum a low life and look how great I am look how good I am I'm running to shul all day and I'm davening and I'm learning and that person you know <laughs> never shows up and never comes even once you know once, once you start once you start creating all these artificial labels and titles and you feel superior to the other person that's a sign that something is not right that's a sign of illness, spiritual illness. It means you're so disconnected from reality that it's really frightening. And you really have to slap yourself in the face and sober yourself up a little, like, like drunk, like totally out of touch with reality. You've got to start assessing yourself honestly. And, if you, the mo- and the moment you start thinking into everything Alter Rebbe is saying here, and you start looking at yourself honestly and objectively, you know, it, it puts yourself, you, you bring yourself back into perspective, into focus. Like, Relax. Why do I feel so superior? I can actually be ashamed of myself. I'm so far off. I'm so disconnected. I'm actually worse, worse than that bum in low life who never comes to shul, who violates all the prohibitions. That murderer, that rapist, all these people, all, you know, I'm worse than them in a certain sense, in a real sense, in an honest sense. Because I don't make any demands of myself. I don't push myself. I'm not doing anything special. I want them to do something special. I expected them to do something special. To overcome with a superhuman courage, to overcome their, their human nature, their ability. I'm not doing anything special in my life. I'm not, I'm not exerting myself. I'm not pushing myself. Come. So where does, it, where does that lead me? But that's enough to deflate this foolish arrogance. I'm not talking about healthy ego, healthy, healthy sense of self. I'm talking about foolish arrogance, narcissism, grandiosity, foolish sense of self. 
um, and pricking that bubble is very healthy. There's, no, there's no, nothing negative. Because that leads you back to joy. Then you can start feeling light again. Then you start caring again about spirituality, about godliness, about your soul. You regain your appetite. You regain your hunger, your thirst, your appetite, your zest for life, for godliness, for learning, for growing, for moving, for changing, for, for absorbing. You become alive again. You recapture that childlike innocence and, and life. You start living again. Life, you feel light, 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 and, and cheerful, and good mood, and you know, in a good mood, and joyful. And this is true every time, all times, every time of the year, but especially now, two days before Purim. This is the time of joy. This is the holiday of joy. Okay, now he continues. So too, with other commandments requiring a struggle, one may find that he does not wage war adequately against his evil impulse, especially in matters involving money, such as the service, labor, of charity, i.e. giving charity in a manner involving labor, far more than is his want and the like. Tzedakah. The mitzvah of giving tzedakah. This is a real test, because you want to know what a person is all about, Talmud says. You can tell what a person is all about when it comes to his pocket, when it comes to his money. A person could be a great tzaddik, but until he has to reach into his pocket, that suddenly um, it doesn't translate when his, all his pious piety and all his righteousness and doesn't translate into, into his pocket, into giving, sharing, being kind and generous. That's really the real test. You want to know what a person is really about? Look at their tzedakah. A person is giving, a person is generous, a person shears whatever God gives him. They, in turn, are kind and generous and sheer. That's a reflection of a person. It means that the person is overcoming their own... Their, it's a struggle. It's difficult. It's your hard-earned money. You know, to your money. I should give up my money to someone else. So that takes a struggle. But are you only doing what's comfortable? Are you only doing the bare minimum? Are you only doing fulfilling your obligation? Or are you really pushing yourself? Are you really going beyond, beyond um, your nature? And um, so if you're making demands of the other person, and we are making demands of the other person, we demand of the bum and the low life, we demand of him to really do something very special, to do, act heroically, to really go beyond his nature. So are you, making, you have to make the same demands of yourself. You have to push yourself when it comes to money, to your tzedakah, to your money, where it hits home. You know, money really hits home for people. They'll talk about everything and anything. In America, there is no shame. Everyone talks about anything and everything, the most private, the private things people talk about to strangers. Now when it comes to money, now that's, that's personal. <laughs> money I won't discuss. Where I invest, where I don't invest. Uh, that's, so money, is, money is, is, is people's reality. So... Are you generous with your money? Are you pushing yourself beyond your nature? Do you give tzedakah beyond what's comfortable? So why are you making all these demands on the other person and you don't even make these demands on yourself? Not even slightly. Is there one thing in your life that you do that's a little uncomfortable? Did you have to exert yourself for one moment? Did you have to push yourself for one moment? Think of the whole day. Is there one thing you did today that really... You have to push yourself. You have to exert yourself. You know, you can feel proud of. You really, it was an honest labor. You really pushed yourself for Everything was comfortable. Whatever was comfortable, it's, you did. And maybe you have good habits. 
But it's heaven. It's nature. It comes second nature. So here you're making all these demands of everyone else. But you're not making these demands of yourself. So this is all in the positive. That even though this person is picture perfect, but if you really think about it, you really honestly assess yourself, you realize it's not such a rosy picture. It's not not as nice as it looks. We love to paint ourselves in a beautiful place, but if you honestly search into your heart, you'll see that we're not not so ayayay. Nothing to boast about, nothing to write home about. Relax. But now he's saying even further, even in the sins of commission, we're also not perfect. Yes, we don't do the sins that we condemn the low life of doing. But on our own level, uh, we're not so perfect when it comes to... Want to continue? Bottom of 400. Even. Even in the category of turn away from evil, every thinking man can discover within himself that he does not turn completely and totally away from evil. In a situation requiring a battle of the level, i.e. magnitude described above, i.e. the battle required of the Kal Shabakalim, or even in a situation requiring a battle of lesser magnitude. For example, he may find that he does not summon up the strength to stop in the middle of a pleasant gossip, or in the middle of relating a tale discrediting his fellow, as he ought to do even if it is a very slight slur, and even if it be true, and even though his purpose in relating it is to exonerate himself. As is known from what Rabbi Shimon said to his father, Rabbeinu HaKadosh, concerning a problematic bill of divorce that was improperly written. I did not write it. Yehuda the tailor wrote it, where the slur was a minor one and the purpose was self-vindication. And yet his father replied, keep away from slander. Note there in the Gemara tractate Bava Basra, beginning of chapter 10. You know, if a person were busy and occupied with fighting, his own, fighting your own struggles and trying to advance in your own spiritual life and really really growing, you wouldn't have time to condemn other people and to look down at other people. You wouldn't have the energy, you wouldn't have the time. You're so busy trying to grow yourself and demanding of yourself, you wouldn't have the time to focus on other people. So for example, everyone on their own level, we're not talking about outright slander or lies, but you know, a juicy piece of gossip that suddenly comes up. Do you have the strength courage of your conviction, the strength of character to say, no, walk away. I'm not interested. I don't want to hear. I'm just listening. I'm just a bystander. It's interesting. It's just a... Do you have the courage to walk away or to stop it in the middle? It takes a lot of courage. Your friends are sitting there, you know, know, to walk away, hang up the phone, or... Do you you really have that courage, that strength to do that? And even... In the case, he brings a case, Rabbi Shimon, the son of Rebbe, the author of the Mishnah. He once wrote a, a get, a divorce document, and it was not done properly. His father was upset. His father said, did you write it? So he told him the truth. He had to vindicate himself. And this was his father he was speaking to. He had an obligation of honoring your parents. His father was upset that his own son could do something so wrong. That he, he made such a mistake. So he had an obligation. You may think he had an obligation out of honor, respecting his father, to relieve his father. His father should know, no, your son did not make a mistake. Relax. Someone else made it. 
And it was a mistake. It wasn't like an intentional thing. It was a mistake. So when he was accused, he had to vindicate himself. You accuse me of doing a crime, I have to tell you, I didn't do it. And he had an obligation to relieve his father of the pain that his father had that his son could make such a mistake. But yet his father says, you know, that's a subtle form of slander. Maybe he could have told him I didn't do it. He didn't have to tell him who did it. But uh, it was a subtle form of slander. He didn't mean, he didn't say it to slander his friend. His father accused him. His father pressed him against the wall. So he had, to, he had to, to vindicate himself. He told him the truth. Who did it? So the purpose was to vindicate himself. He was speaking to his own father. There was no negative intent here at all. And yet his father says, for someone like you, this is considered slander. Someone in your caliber, this, this is considered slander. It's not, not for your level. So there are sins, but there are subtle type of sins. For example, it says if you shame someone, if you embarrass someone, It's as if you murder them because their, their, their face turns colors. Their blood rushes to their face, leaves their face, and rushes to their face. So it's like subtly it's a murder. So there are sins that you can do in a subtle way. So maybe for a, a lesser person it's not considered a sin, but for someone like you it's considered a sin. So a person has to be careful. Everyone on their own level has to be careful. So the question is, okay, you don't do any, any overt crimes. You don't, you're not doing anything gross any gross sins, but how about subtle sins? Are you as careful about these subtle sins as, as, you're, as you're demanding from this other person, from the simple person? You're demanding of them to be careful and not to sin. Are you demanding that of yourself on your own level? Are you overcoming your desire, your urge, your instinct? So if a person will look carefully in his own life, you'll see that we're not so perfect. Again, the picture, the picture is not so rosy. It's not as perfect as we would like it to be, as we pretend to be. As we project in the public, we all project ourselves a certain image in the public. We're fine citizens, we're perfect citizens, we're respectable citizens. But if you look at yourself honestly and objectively, not so respectable, not so fine, not so... Not because we're doing anything grossly wrong, no. But that's not how you measure yourself. Don't measure yourself by that person's measurement. Well, I'm not a murderer, I'm not a rapist. No, 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 that doesn't make you a nice citizen, that you're not a murderer, you're not a rapist, you're not a bum, a lowlife. Measure yourself on your own measuring. What's a struggle for you? Because as long as, you have to look subjectively, it's not objective, it's subjective. Look at the struggle. Everyone in life struggles. You struggle on your level, he struggles on his level. Who says one is more significant than the other, insignificant? Your struggle is just as significant as this struggle. And if you fail in your struggle, what do you expect from this person? You are the rabbi and the scholar and the mystic and you are the, the top of the community. If you fail in your struggles, you expect him to... You expect that bum in the low life to be able to overcome his struggles. Who are you kidding? So who's worse? Who's at fault? You're much worse than he is. How could you look yourself in the mirror? What are you, what are you so proud of? Grandiose? Narcissistic? Superiority complex? Arrogant? Whom are you kidding? Which, which delusional world are you living in? You have to prick that bubble. Deflate, deflate that bubble. Prick that balloon. Get back to reality.
wake up, start living, start struggling, start living, start. And then you won't have any time to condemn others and to judge others and to feel superior to others and to feel arrogant to others. Then you will fulfill the edict of the Mishnah that every single person is better than I am. He's a much better person than I am. How can I even face The same applies. The same applies to very many similar things which occur frequently. There, too, one will find that he does not resist his evil impulse as he ought to, even in the category of turn away from evil. This is especially true with regard to sanctifying oneself by refraining from indulgence in permitted matters. And this is a biblical commandment derived from the verses, you shall be holy and sanctify yourselves, etc. Even if we're not doing anything wrong and we're doing everything that's right, but there's the spirit of the law. There's a mitzvah in the Torah that a person has to lead a holy life. Don't indulge in materialism. Don't define yourself by materialism. Live for something, something deeper, greater. Materialism is just a shell, a means to an end. And uh, don't confuse the shell with the fruit. So every time a person indulges, a person just you know, indulges in materialism for materialism's sake, just for the sake of indulgence, you're violating a negative, a negative prohibition. So if you look honestly and assess yourself honestly, are you really fulfilling this mitzvah? Like you said earlier, when a person doesn't feel joyful, when a person doesn't feel light, when a person feels arrogant and, and uh, sluggish of heart and you stop caring and lose interest, it's almost impossible to properly fulfill the mitzvah of not indulging, of living a holy life, of, you know, living by the spirit of the law, not just the technical uh, detail of the law. So you are violating a biblical prohibition. So what are you so proud of? Who says you're better off than that person? You're not living up to what Hashem expects of you. Continue. Moreover. Moreover, even according to the opinion that this commandment is not of biblical origin, Yet, rabbinic enactments are even stricter than biblical laws, etc. And yet one will often find himself succumbing to self-indulgence when the temptation is strong and requires a battle to overcome it. But all these and similar matters are among the sins which people trample underfoot, insensitive to their importance, and which have come to be regarded as permissible because they are committed repeatedly. All the above-mentioned calculations, then, can lead one to conclude that he is no better than the Kal Shebekalim. Like the Kal Shebekalim, he too fails to wage war against his evil impulse when it is required of him. Yet this still does not explain the requirement that one consider oneself lower than every man. In what way is he worse than the Kal Shebekalim? In answer, the Alter Rebbe continues. So he explained that, that they're equal. He fails in his struggle, and you fail in your struggle. He's not living up to his potential. And you, by not doing anything that's uncomfortable, by falling and violating all these minor transgressions, you are not living up to your potential. Yeah, so you're equal. So we're the same. <laughs> so we're on the same level. But the Mishnah says that you should feel lower then the Kalsh will come. The Kalsh, the worthless of worthless, the bum, the low life is actually superior to me. What way is he superior to me? We're in the same level, okay. So now, now... But he doesn't know any better. Ah, oh, that's, that's what he's going to answer. 
In truth, however, if he is a scholar and upholds God's Torah and wishes to be close to God, his sin is unbearably great and his guilt is increased manifold for his not waging war and not overcoming his impulse in a manner commensurate with the quality and nature of the war mentioned above that the Kal Shibakalim must face. His guilt is far greater than the guilt of the Kal Shibakalim, the most worthless of the street corner squatters, who are remote from God and his Torah. Their guilt for not summoning up the fear of God who knows and sees all their actions in order to restrain their impulse which burns like a fiery flame is not as heinous as the guilt of one who draws ever nearer to God his Torah and his service. As our sages of blessed memory said of the apostate Acher, Elisha ben Avuya, because he knew my glory, said God, if despite this he still sinned, his guilt is far greater. Acher was one of the four who entered into the Pardis. They had a mystical experience, Rabbi Kiva, Elisha ben Avuya, and uh, ben Zayma ben Azai. They all entered into the mystical realm and they had mystical experiences and uh, they were affected by it. Uh, and Rabbi Kiva was the only one who entered in peace and left in peace. And Azai died, Ben Zayma became mad, um, Elisha ben Avuya became a heretic. And from that point on, he was not edited out of the Talmud, but he was called Acher, the other one. His student, Rabbi Meir, kept on studying Torah from him. All the rabbis shunned him. Once he became a heretic, he became Hellenized, they all shunned him. Rabbi, Ach, Rabbi Meir continued to study Torah from him. He says, I can take his inner and I can throw away his peel. I'm not going to be affected him. And Rabbi Meir turned to his teacher, his former te his teacher, and he says, Rabbi, why don't you do teshuva? Why don't you repent? It was like before Yom Kippur. What happened was they were traveling. His, his teacher was traveling on a horse, driving a horse on Shabbos. You're not allowed to drive a horse in Shabbos. And he was teaching Torah to his student, Rabbi Meir, while he was violating Shabbos. And then when they reach a certain point, Elisha ben Avoyaton turned to the student and said, Stop, you're not allowed to go any further. Because it's Shabbos, and you reach the Tchum Shabbos, you reach the, the limit, you're allowed to travel on Shabbos, walk on Shabbos. So his student turned to him, he says, Rabbi, why don't you do Truva? Why don't you come back home? So he says, Because I heard a heavenly voice that said, I will accept everyone's teshuva. It says, shuvu banim shevavim, return my wild ones, my wild children that went wild in me. Everyone, I'll accept everyone's teshuva, except from Acher. Acher's teshuva I will not accept. Elisha ben Avuya's teshuva I will not accept. Why? Why was Hashem so angry in Elisha ben Avuya? Because he knew better. It's one thing when a person sins, says, no, he's ignorant. But someone who knows, knows so much, was in the inside. And yet he rebelled against God. It's like a real slap in the face. That's a real sting. It's like when, when, when the favorite son turns against, turns against his father, it's a real slap in the face. That shouldn't have stopped Elisha. Elisha should have done shuvah anyway. Because there's nothing that stops a person from doing shuvah. If he would have persisted and done shuvah anyway, of course... The gates of tshuva are never closed and nothing could stop a sincere, heartfelt return. But he took it at face value. He says, God is so angry at me, it's hopeless. So I'm not even going to try. And he died, he died without tshuva. So, um, he, so here we see that there's a huge difference. How can you compare 
someone who's ignorant, someone who doesn't have the background, doesn't have the education, wasn't exposed to the same things that you were exposed to, the Torah scholar, the Torah scholar who's from the inside, on the inside, who should know better, and was exposed to a higher level of education. So when he sins, it's far worse. Not only when he sins if he does the same thing that the low life is doing. We're not discussing that. But if he sins, what's considered a sin on his level. Or if he's not living up to his potential. If he's not overcoming his struggles. Or if he's not struggling, period. That's considered a greater rebellion against God. That's far worse than the low life's lack of struggle. Because the low life, what's his life all about? His life is struggle. He's destined to struggle because of his position that he's in, because of his livelihood, because of what he's exposed to, because of his nature, because of his background, his whole life is one huge struggle to do the right thing, to do the morally right thing, the ethically right thing. It's a huge struggle. Every time he tells the truth, it's a huge, it's a huge struggle. Every time he has to overcome temptation, it's a huge struggle. So he is condemned to struggle. That's his life. So he's failing in his struggles. But when the one on the top is not struggling, when the, when the Torah scholar, the Bemi is not struggling, there's no struggle, there's no strife, there's no tension, there's no struggle in his life. Everything is comfortable and everything is... That's much worse. That's a much greater rebellion against God than the lack of struggle of the low life. So therefore, you should be ashamed of yourself. He's better a person than you are. That bum, that low life, that rapist, that murderer is a better person than you are. Because, okay, you expect him to struggle. What do you expect of him? But from you, we expect better. So when you're on the same level that he is, when he's not struggling and you're not struggling, we expect much more from you. You're the leader. You have to set the tone. You have to lead by example. You have to go beyond if you struggle and you successfully overcome your nature, and you push yourself beyond your limitations, then you set the example. You can inspire that person. You want to change that person? You're upset that society has such low lives. You want to change the bottom 10% of society? Okay, start with yourself. Change yourself. Struggle. Engage in the battle. Struggle. Overcome. Push yourself. And when you successfully struggle and overcome, then you'll see... That, you, that you'll inspire others on their level to overcome their struggles. Because we're all connected. And maybe that explains why we're studying in the Talmud. That if a person kills someone unintentionally, he has to go to a city of refuge, and he has to live there and stay there, or be buried there until the high priest dies. When the high priest dies, then he's free. What's the connection? Because, in a certain sense, it's the high priest's fault that this happened, that this sin happened. What do you mean it's his fault? He's the high priest. He's in the temple. He's the holiest Jew. What's the connection between him and a murderer who killed someone? Yes, unintentionally, but he killed someone. It's all his fault. Because were he to be a high priest the way a high priest should be, if he were to live up to his potential, if he were to engage in the struggle, whatever is a struggle on his level, and he was able to go beyond his limitation, it would trickle down and everyone on their level would be able to overcome their own personal struggle. 
So instead of looking down at other people or judging and condemning other people, you actually have to know the truth that that person is superior to you. You're worse than that person. And that's why there's no room for arrogance. The whole, all these artificial labels that one person may put up in relation to the other person. You know, I'm an orthodox person, I'm a religious person, I'm a greater person, I'm a better person, while well, that person is not religious, and that person is secular, and that person is... All these artificial labels that just give you a false sense of superiority, and you know, I'm a superior person, I'm so holy, I'm so devout, I'm so pious, I'm so divine, I'm so godly, I'm, I'm living in Jerusalem, and I'm, I'm so immersed in holiness. How can you compare me to that bum, that lowlife, that secular bum, lowlife, atheist, good-for-nothing... Pustak. Really? <laughs> Relax before you get before you get carried away in your own self, uh, in your grandiosity, in your narcissism, in your delusionary assessment. The Torah says, "Wait a minute, just relax." That Jew is better than you are. You're much worse than that Jew. Really? You expect him to struggle. Where's your struggle? None exist. And even if you struggle, it's a tiny struggle. You're pushing yourself, a baby step. Okay, big deal. That's not what you expect of that person. You expect a real struggle. You expect a dramatic change. He should change from one extreme to the other. Where's your dramatic change? There's no drama, there's no dramatics. It's quite boring, quite predictable. Nothing new in your life. Nothing changes. Same as today, yesterday. Yeah, slowly, maturely. Small steps forward. But there's nothing dramatic, nothing exciting, nothing to write home about. And how about all the subtle things in your life? You think you're so perfect? How about all the subtle things? The subtle lies, the subtle slanders. You know, the small things that we just step on because we don't pay attention to and we think it's no big deal. Because mistakenly we look at the we look at the externals. We're not looking at the not the externals that matter. It's the struggle, and there's no struggle. Anymore. So who's who's worse? We expect more of you than we expect from that person. So you're far off, far worse. Than that. And if you ha- if you approach that Jew with that sense of humility, then maybe you would be able to have an impact. When you approach another person with arrogance. I am doing you the favor that I'm talking to you <laughs> and I'm going to draw you close to me. I'm the insider and you're the outsider and I'm Kirov Rechaikim. You're the outsider and I'm the insider and I'm going to be kind enough to let you in to my holy abode. The insider, outsider. You're the outsider. You're so outside, it's not even funny. You don't even realize how outside you are. You're more outside than that person. So when you approach that other person with humility instead of arrogance, then you'll have an impact on the person. The person senses no ego, there's no arrogance. And that's the biggest symptom that something is wrong with your service to God. Because there's no joy. Anyone who walks around with a sense of arrogance, it's guaranteed there's no joy in that person's life. There's no lightness, there's no joy, there's no cheerfulness, it's, it's heavy, it's negative, it's dark very judgmental, very oppressive, very harsh. No love, no joy, no kindness, no goodness. All wrapped in the name of God. When the person is so far 
is so unhealthy, is so critically ill. Because the first sign of health is when the, when the person is light, when the person is joyful, the person is light. Egoless. And if you approach that person with that approach, then you can reach that person. You can connect with the person. There's no ego. Ego doesn't get in the way. There's no ego. It's soul to soul. And when the person sees that sincerity, and the person sees that you're growing, you'll inspire him also to grow. And he'll be able to deal with his struggles. And he'll be able to make the dramatic changes that he has to make. Because you're making the dramatic changes that you have to make. This is an honest, this is honest accounting. Otherwise, we end up with this bubble that turns up being nothing. It's not just in the financial world where, where tragically you have this huge bubble that turns out to be zero. It's amazing. Overnight, huge, giant, BMI, right? ends up being nothing. There's nothing there. So when you make, by the time you're through making this calculation, you're taking this huge inflated bubble that we all create of ourselves, this idol that we make of ourselves, and you bring it down to its real price, its real worth, its real value. And now we can go to the marketplace. Now, now we know what, what, where, where we're really at in life. Then we can go from there. Now we can talk business. Now we can talk reality. This is the real value of what's really going on. You know, it's quite a, it's, it's like a shocker. And who would have believed this huge, and just overnight, it's just, what's the real value? Nothing. Pennies. Nothing. So, who gains from having this, this inflated bubble? There was no real value there. And this is, what a, this is what gets in the way. When a person has this inflated, inflated sense of self, which is completely not justified by reality, and which breeds this arrogance, this foolish arrogance, this superiority complex, grandiosity, narcissism. This, is, this, is, this, bubble, this bubble has to be pricked. This bubble has to be... Everything has to be brought back to, into proportion to reality. Uh, you, want to, you want to conclude? Therefore, our sages declared. Therefore, our sages declared in regard to the illiterate that deliberate sins are regarded in their case as inadvertent acts, since they are unaware of the gravity of their sins. With a scholar, the reverse is true. An oversight due to lack of study is adjudged as being as grave as a deliberate sin. Thus, his failure to restrain his evil impulse is indeed worse than the failure of the Kal Shibakalim. By contemplating this, the observant scholar will now be able to fulfill the instruction of the Mishnah, quoted at the beginning of this chapter, be lowly of spirit before every man. Thereby, he will crush his own spirit and the spirit of the Sitra Achra in his animal soul, enabling the light of his soul to permeate and irradiate his body, as explained in chapter 29. In the next chapter, we're going to learn, after studying the last two chapters, 29 and 30, without the Rebbe is giving us the antidote to insensitivity of the heart, dullness of the heart, sluggishness of the heart, 
and we stop caring and we're out of it and nothing reaches us and we don't connect with anything and we stop, you know, we couldn't really care less and we really can't get into anything. And it really comes from arrogance. Now, the Rebbe showed us how to crush that arrogance, crush that, that, that false sense of arrogance through the methods we learned in 29 and the method that we just learned in this chapter by realizing that every person is really superior than I am. That I'm really the lowest person walking in the face of God's earth. It's a very sobering thought. Um, and not delusionary so, but, but actually so, from an honest point of view, from a, a, a genuine point of view. Um, and that's enough to break your heart, you know. And uh, when your heart is crushed, then you, you come back to life. You regain your appetite. You, you feel alive again. You feel light. You feel joyful, cheerful, grateful, thankful. You can't thank Hashem enough. You know, if a person walks around thinking that I deserve everything, then nothing is good enough for me. No person is good enough for me. Nothing is good enough for me. And it destroys your relationships. It destroys everything. It's, it's the beginning of all mental illness. When a person walks around, I deserve nothing. Whatever Hashem gives me is, is a kindness. You're grateful for everything. You're thankful for everything. Then that's the root for, for leading a very satisfied life, a meaningful life, a good life. And then your joy comes back. You start living again. You start connecting again. But by taking these medicines he's describing here in chapter 29-30, it's enough to crush your spirit and maybe it can lead to a little, it's a little depressing when you think about it. That I am the lowest of all God's creatures or um, it's not actually it's not such a pleasant thought so it could leave a, a negative residue in your heart and it could lead to a little depression and that's what he's going to address in chapter 31 that you know sometimes when you take a medicine yes medicines are not given to healthy people <laughs> and medicines are given in doses and given judiciously but not the end of the world. Yeah, medicines are bitter, and it's okay. Once in a while, it's okay to taste a little bitterness, a little murder. <laughs> not everything in life is sweet and, and clouds. There's also a little shadow, a little bitterness. And sometimes that's the antidote that you have to use, and it's not the end of the world to use it in a very, in a very healthy, uh, in a very healthy, constructive way. Is that why um, you know, we need struggle in life? Because you know, I remember thinking when I was young, being told we're the chosen people, and I remember having a thought, well, then why has it been so difficult for the Jews, for the chosen people? So is it the tension that we need? That's a good question. The struggle keeps us honest. Um, and um, it, keeps you, it keeps you modest also. You know, the Talmud says you don't appoint a leader in the community unless he has a, uh, a box full of worms, like a, like a skeleton in his closet. Because it's important for a leader to be humble. The Jewish people were chosen to be the leaders of the world and um, spiritual leaders of the world. And it's important to keep ourselves honest and modest and grounded and the greater a person is, the more it can get to your head. And once you become arrogant, it destroys everything. We see it, the downfall of great people. They become arrogant, grandiose, narcissistic, and they just, they just, it's the biggest danger. So they self-destruct. Yeah, but when you're born a Jew, it just, 
it just became clear to me it, because he, he because we know his glory. So we really so a lot of a lot more is expected from us. You, we really don't have any excuses for right, we have no excuses for all the suffering that we go through. By the way, when he says you should feel yourself humble to every person, he's including, including not only Jews, non-Jews as well. Because they didn't stand at Mount Sinai. We stood at Mount Sinai. With the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah. You know, we're part of the chosen people. We have the Torah. We have our ancestors, who heroically carried the Torah for 3,800 years with thick and thin. So we have all that powerful energy, the nuclear energy inside of us. And when we don't live up to it, what do, you, what do you expect from anyone else? So we expect so much more of ourselves. That's where all that Jewish guilt comes from. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we, we've, we take all the blame. The truth is, there was a Hasidic Rebbe who once said, he says, why... He said, everyone comes to me to ask me to pray for him, for, to help, to pray to God if they're ill, if they need a blessing in, in Parnassa, and business. Why is everyone coming to me? He says, you know why everyone's coming to me? Because it's all my fault. They know the truth. Why are they suffering? It's my fault. So, so they're coming and knocking on my door. Hey, it's your problem. It's your fault. Help me. And he's right. Because the truth is, when the greatest Jew, when the tzaddik, if he's not living up to his potential... Then, then the whole world is messed up. It says if there was one Jew who was 100% Mashiach would come. Because we're all connected. If there was one person who got it right, who lived up to his potential 100%, then everyone would do the same and then Mashiach would come. So, yes, we do take blame for everything. And that's why the Jew is the heart of the world. That's why all anti-Semitism is always focused on the Jew. What do they want from the Jew? The Jew because they're right. It is all the Jews' fault. <laughs> Not in the way that they mean it, but in the spiritual sense. We know there's an energy healer here in Manhattan. She's Russian. Her father is Jewish. Her mother's not Jewish. She's not Jewish. 100% not Jewish. Her father is Jewish. And uh, she was diagnosed with a terminal illness in, the, in her young 20s. And the doctors couldn't help her. She traveled to India. She, went, she stayed in India for like 10 years, studied with all the gurus in the real the real gurus in India. And not only is she alive today, she's in the 50s and the 60s, she became a healer, an energy healer. And she says she loves spending time in Jerusalem because she feels the energy in Jerusalem. There's nowhere in the world like Jerusalem, so she makes sure to spend a month or two. And she has all these Jewish friends who are not observant, not connected. She tells them, you know, I don't understand you. When I was in India, and I studied, I sat at the feet of the real masters, not the, you know, the dabblers or the charlatans, the real, the real McCoy. And they told me in their ancient books, which goes back thousands of years, their ancient books, they have a tradition that the world will not get its act together. The world will not, until, the world will not really come into focus until the Jew gets his act together. <laughs> That's the tradition. This Indian, Indian culture no connection to Jewish culture for thousands of years. But that's the tradition that they've received. So in a way, the world is blaming the Jew for all the problems. In a way, they're right. <laughs> because if we lived up to our godly potential, our divine potential, Mashiach would be We would revolutionize human consciousness. The whole world would come into focus. Every non-Jew would become a righteous Gentile, would become a Noahide, 
a giant. Noah was a giant, a moral, ethical, spiritual human being, a godly being. Every human being has a divine mission in this world. So if we lived up to our divine mission, then every human being, six billion people, would live up to their divine mission. And they would be connected. And the whole world would be connected. And the world would be a paradise, a garden of Eden. It's all doable. It's up to us. And that's why they're blaming us. When the world is in a, in a mess, they say, hey, <laughs> this, is, this is where the buck stops here. Yes, so it is a struggle, and it's a constant reminder to us that all eyes are on Jerusalem. All eyes are... Because the world knows. You stood at Sinai. You have the revel- you were there at Revelation. You have the Torah. You have the key. You have the key to get us out of this madhouse. You have the truth. Blueprint. Blueprint for life. So the... The bad news is that the focus is not going away. <laughs> the focus on Israel and the Jew is not going away. The good news is that the world is actually waiting for us really to get our act together. And then they'll give us a standing ovation and the world will become, the world will, that's the world of Mashiach. So it really is up to us. It's really in our hands. But there's no arrogance. There's nothing to do with arrogance. On the contrary. This keeps us in our toes. Arrogance gets in the way. Not about arrogance. On the contrary, when you assess yourself honestly, where you're really at, as we learned in the previous chapter, even when a person appears on the facade, on the surface, a person may appear to be very upright and a very upstanding individual, but if you look a little deeper, look at your dreams, look where a person is really at. Where is a person really at? You'll discover that we're far, far, far away from what's desirable and and that's enough to crush your spirit. And once you crush your spirit, then you feel alive again. Then you reconnect with that innocence, with that purity. That's intact. That's whole. We all have it inside of us. It's there. We're born with it. It's inherent. It's innate. It's godly. We can't touch that place within us. But it gets covered up. We grow jaded. We grow because it gets covered up by your ego nature. When you crush that, that, that foolish sense of arrogance, you crush through the shell, then the real human spirit could emerge. That real humanity, that goodness, that, that kindness, that love, that, 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 that. And we can connect and we, and we regain that appetite. And then we look up and we don't look down at other people. That's the first sign that we're off. The moment you start looking down at other people, that's, that's the first sign that we're disconnected. It's a barometer. When you have this inflation of arrogance and it starts going up, <laughs> then you know that it's time to do a little soul searching, time to check your. Uh, and as he described earlier, this is a very good recipe, a very good antidote. When you realize that the fact that we have all these desires, unhealthy desires inside of us, these self-destructive tendencies, and, you know, it's, it's enough to humble you. Like, that even, even the animal doesn't have, you know, we're even lower than the animal. Animals don't have such desires. Only human beings have addictions and self-destructive tendencies and desires. So instead of being so, feeling so arrogant and being so taken by ourselves, it's, it's, you feel a little crushed, a little humbled. Like, uh, but if you, if you really take to heart everything we just learned and discussed in chapter 29 and 30, especially at times when you feel that you need it, when you feel that you lost that joy, 
you lost that sense of lightness. You feel jaded and cynical and you lose interest and there's no energy and there's no excitement and there's no... Especially when you start looking down at other people. You start feeling arrogant and superior and holier than thou and I'm better and... That's not Yiddishkeit. When do you know that you're really in touch with the truth? It's if you really fulfill what the Mishnah says. Every person is superior than I am. When you really feel it and appreciate it and acknowledge that, at that moment, you're connected. At that moment, you feel joyful. At that moment, you're alive. Truly alive. Inwardly alive. Joy comes from within. And you feel, then you're alive. And then you can break through all barriers. When a person is joyful, all possibilities open up. When a person is, is not joyful, you know, you create this, you close your mind. You know, it's really the closing of the mind. And you, and you really, you know, limit your options. You don't really see the way out. And you just, you just, you know, you just dig a hole for yourself. But when a person is joyful, there's many opportunities. And you can go in new directions. And, you know, things open up. You know, things change. Change is possible. Not only is change possible, change is inevitable. When you plug in to the, to the dynamic change, or, which is constantly changing. God is creating the world each and every moment. The whole world is one dynamic change. The world is vibrating. The world is alive. The world is constantly being transformed from energy to matter. Once you plug into that, that eternal reality, then your life starts changing for the better. You're alive. You change your habits. You change your nature. You change, and then your life starts changing. Things start moving in your life. Things that you feel you're stuck, whether it's financially or health, everything starts moving. You know, once you plug into that joy... There's no, there's no limit to what's possible. It's like a nuclear explosion. There's no limit. To what's possible. It's inexhaustible. It's, in, it's infinite. There's, there's so much that could be done. We have such potential. We're not even scratching the surface. But when we limit ourselves and we, we create like a tunnel vision, we become not only legally blind, spiritually blind. <laughs> we can't see. But it's, it's, it's a blindness of our own making. We just, we just, this arrogance, this ego just paralyzes us and we just can't see there's no peripheral vision and there's you know just tunnel vision and we can't see and everything is a blur and that's what happens but when you're joyful suddenly you regain your 20-20 vision and your peripheral vision and the world suddenly becomes a beautiful place you know all it takes to block out the world you know what it takes to block out the whole world one little finger put your finger in front of your eyes and suddenly this beautiful world turns dark and you don't see anything you don't know, you don't know why, why your fellow is so excited. I don't see anything. You remove the blinders. You remove that finger and you see luscious green and you see a beautiful, I don't know, here in Manhattan, but whatever. You see, you see a beautiful world. You know, you open your eyes and you see all the beauty and suddenly the world comes alive. The world is beautiful. Life is beautiful. The world is beautiful. People are beautiful. You know, there, there's so much beauty and so much goodness. So when you don't see that, it's a reflection of yourself. The inner darkness. The arrogance blocks it all out. So it's really self-inflicted. We create our own misery. We create hell, hell on earth. This world is a paradise, the Garden of Eden. If you're joyful, you create your own reality. If you're not joyful, you just become a victim and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The world becomes darker and narrower and more constricted and problems upon problems upon problems. The less arrogant, the less ego, the more joyful, the more expansive you are, the lighter you you feel, the more joyful, cheerful, good-natured. Suddenly the possibilities expand infinitely, endlessly. So we create, we create our own reality. 
It's up to us. We're in the driver's seat. We have to be joyful. We have to remove that arrogance. This is something we have to do. Better we do it than God does it. <laughs> if He wants to crush our spirit, we can rely on Him. <laughs> he does a good job, but it's It's better we should do it ourselves in a joyful way, in a, in a healthy way. Um, just not crush our spirit, crush that false arrogance. Get rid of that, that false sense of ego and security. Because when push comes to shove, as we discovered this week, in the financial world, there's nothing there. It's just a bubble. And, what's, and, and then you discover this, it's, it's, there's nothing there, right? But if you, so if you get rid of that full sense of pride, that full sense of arrogance, and you connect to reality, then life is full of beautiful possibilities. And then, you know, there's no, there's no limit. You know, what you said about the financial world is even more true because Bear Stearns had the money, but they just couldn't get it fast enough and it fell apart. Hmm. They weren't really, they were solvent, essentially, but people panicked. Because what they do is they do the back office work for hedge funds. And, you know, they get very excitable, the hedge fund owners. So it was all, the whole thing was a bubble. Even the fact that they said Bear Stearns couldn't come through wasn't true. So even though they had the money, they still didn't. It happened anyway. It's such, it's such a crush. In 1928, I mean, I saw the movie already. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> what you're saying. It's a crush. It's a, well, I, I mean, saw the movie. A person was worth $50 million, and now he's, and that $50 million is now worth 20000 the chairman is worth a billion, and now he's worth what's that? What's that worth? Seventeen million. And it's like it's a crushing. What a crushing! Well, we're lucky we don't have those problems. <laughs> <laughs> started with, you know, the guy says, "My wife and I, they're married twenty years. We started with nothing. We have most of it left." <laughs> 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 <laughs>